0: That's heritageradionetwork.org/15 to donate and enter to win today, and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin is home to the nation's only Master Cheesemakers program that provides innovative cheesemakers with continuing education opportunities? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com.
3: Welcome to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. Joining me today is Aaron Patinkin, CEO and co-founder of Ovenly, one of New York's leading bakeries now in business for over eight years with multiple locations, Greenpoint, Williamsburg, Park Slope. They have a Manhattan location. They're also opening up Ovenly Ovenly Studio 154, an event space, which will be opening in May of this year. They have over 150 wholesale clients, including both LaGuardia and JFK Airport, and they're in just about... Every single coffee shop that you've ever been in, in all of New York City. Erin has been recognized as one of New York's most badass women in food in New York City by Zagat and as one to watch in New York City by Conde Nast. Her writing has been featured in Lucky Peach, Vice, and in the cookbook Ovenly Sweet and Salty Treat from New York's Most Creative Bakery, which was named as one of the best overall books of 2014. By National Public Radio. Today we're going to talk about building a business from scratch, the trials and tribulations of partnership, and the growing pains of expansion. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you didn't always bake. You did something before ovenly. You were in, uh, you had many jobs, but you had some corporate jobs, you had some nonprofit jobs. I'm curious about if you can highlight one or two of them that you feel like were really impactful to shaping you, not necessarily related to the bakery business.
4: Sure. Um, I actually had no corporate jobs. I worked in the nonprofit industry and education for um, starting at age 20 and until I started the company. So, um, you know, it's interesting. My background, nerdily enough, is in theater. I was a theater major. I performed um, from starting from age seven all the way to age twenty five. I kind of knew that that wasn't uh, something I wanted to do as a career by the time I stopped. But I, you know, I loved the theater, and I always thought like, oh well, what a waste of uh, of of uh, education. And then as I started. Um, Ovenly became an entrepreneur I realized that was one of the most valuable things I've ever done um you know and working in a theater company and having that experience working with a team and a group of people that were all dedicated towards creating a show um taught me teamwork it taught me how to speak extemporaneously it taught me how to get along with egos it uh taught me how to work with different community members because I worked in a nonprofit based social justice based theater. So I think that was um, I had no idea what I was learning when I was learning it and it all came out when I became an entrepreneur. So that was a that was big for me and then I worked for um a large women's organization right before we started Ovenly and that was really valuable to me because I had an amazing manager and I really never had someone who directly mentored me and managed me and showed me how to be a leader. And um, her name's Melissa Yakel. we're still friends. And I feel like that is where I really learned how to work. And so I really, uh, I really value those experiences.
3: It's pretty amazing when you can reflect back and say, Oh, I learned how to sell my business when I was in the theater. And I learned how to manage people when I was being managed. Uh, I want to talk about growing up and how the uh potentially your parents impacted, you know, the decisions that you've made and obviously the creative freedom that they've given you to pursue what you wanted to do. So, where are you from? And uh, you know, when you were younger, did you ever foresee yourself being an an entrepreneur or did you always think that you were going to be in the theater when you were a kid?
4: Well, when I was a kid, I really wanted, you know, I would like cook with my mom all the time and I would uh give fake speeches, uh, at the sink while I washed grapes, uh, accepting my Oscar for best, uh, you know, tomato sauce. So there was something there, uh, with food, but I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. I went to high school in downtown Chicago. Um, you know, I'm the third of three. I have two older brothers who are also big personalities and they're both kind of crazy polymath geniuses. And, Oddly enough, I think that gave me freedom because my parents were just like, by the time it was the third, you can do what you want. These are the science guys. Like, go be in theater. We don't care. Um, And so I think I really had the opportunity to explore myself as a creative person. And, um, you know, the entrepreneurial thing is interesting. I always had ideas. Starting in high school, I had business ideas that I would you know, present to my friends and try to work on, you know, I was, I was one of those kids who babysat, started working when I was 14, babysat all the time, uh, saved my money for beer, but, you know, saved it at least. And then, um, after college, I had a thousand ideas. I was always trying to start something from, you know, I tried to start a fund for arts. I tried to start a food co-op. I was always kind of throwing pasta at the wall with ideas but I didn't identify that as having an entrepreneurial spirit until I started a company. I didn't know what that meant.
3: Did any of those projects actually <laughs> stick at all? Like, you know, did you start a t-shirt company in high school or something? I started a scale? jewelry
4: company when I was 22 with my friend Molly Pre, Cavanaugh.
3: Pre-internet, pre-Etsy? Pre-Etsy, pre-Etsy. Okay. Pre- Ahead of the curve. <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah. I, You know, I'm always doing some sort of, craft or class. And I got really into metalsmithing when I, um, beating in college and then metalsmithing right after college. And so I started a small jewelry company and I sold my products all over the city at little trunk shows. I sold at some boutiques and, um, really the other piece of that for me is at the same time I had a boyfriend who was starting a, a custom carpentry company. And so he was really like between the two of us, the, really on an entrepreneurial path. And I helped by doing his books. I helped doing some client management, all these little things that build up and you don't you don't realize the skills that you're learning. So I had those opportunities when I was in my 20s.
3: You are often indicated as the person in the partnership that has the sweet tooth. You're the it's sweet true. one, Agatha. Uh, your partner uh, is more focused on the savory or that's what she enjoys more. I'm curious, Did your mom, dad, grandparents, did anyone bake? Yeah. And do you have a couple things that were family recipes that have made their way into Ovenly? Because a lot of the things that you do, and we'll talk about this in a little while, you don't do a ton of traditional flavor profiles. You've got a chocolate chip cookie, but you also do some things that are kind of zany and out there as far as bakeries go. So was there anything sort of weird flavor profile-wise, from your family? And if not, what was something kind of more standard that your family baked and made a lot?
4: Well, yes, I baked a lot growing up with my mom and my maternal grandmother. That was something we did together. Um, my mother's mother uh, was from the former Yugoslavia. And so she baked all the stuff that was East- Eastern European 50% of the time and really solidly, 1950s American 50% of the time so you know she would make walnut kiffle which was this amazing flaky buttery nut roll and then she would make a pineapple cheesecake made with jello you know it was that was Solid solid 1950s right there and that's really kind of you know I'm definitely a kid child of the 80s grew up eating you know seven layer bars and you know Peanut butter cookies with Hershey kisses stuck in the top. So that's really what I ate growing up. But I did bake all the time. And then, um, honestly, meeting Agatha, we she was really the she loves uh, the more savory f- side of food. I love to bake, but she was really more experimental with f- herbs and nuts and spices and that really influenced me and I think we both influenced each other because I had such like a uh, foundation in more american style pastries and that's really where our ideas
3: started to converge. Tell me about those ideas starting to come together in terms of the business. So you met your partner in a food focused book club. You became friends. How do you transition from hanging out with someone to saying we should now, spend all of our lives our in intertwined and <laughs> every waking minute of and our open lives. up a business in New York not an easy thing to do. Open up a bakery, very competitive market, especially when you did it. Correct me if I'm wrong, 2009, 2010, sort of the height of the, the cupcake, artisan, artisan food donut Eps- everything, everything was really coalescing yes. at that moment, and then yeah. you thought. Yeah, let's let's jump in. So, how did that? How did all that come to be?
4: Well, we did everything ass backwards, so <laughs> I think that's how it happened. Um, I met my partner in a food-focused book club. We shared mutual friends. Uh, we actually. Basically we both went to meetings, but we never went to the same meeting for almost a year. And so finally I held one of the meetings at my house. Agatha made these delicious pistachio cardamom cupcakes with chocolate ganache frosting. We still sell them in they the store.
3: Clearly stuck out in yeah, your mind.
4: Really good. And you know, I just started up a conversation like, wow, I'm really surprised that business hasn't come out of this group of amazing women because everyone but Agatha and I were cookbook writers personal chefs, wellness people, food writers, who've gone on to do amazing stuff. Leah Koenig, who is an amazing food writer, and she concentrates on Jewish food. Um, I mean, just tons of people. So we um, were the only ones who were not really involved in food in some sort of way. And Arthur kind of hung around after everyone left and was like, I've been wanting to start a business. And I was like, well, I've been wanting to start a business. And so a week later we met and started talking. So we actually were not friends uh, to start. We were partners before we were friends. And we decided we were going to create this crazy bar snack company. We'd go drink and be like, wow, those bars only have gross sunflower seeds. Let's make something better. Uh, developed all these recipes. Got a client, client had a coffee shop in the morning, bar at night. She said, I can't find good wholesale pastries, will you bake for us? And Agatha literally, Agatha and I just literally had no idea what we were getting into. started. We, we baked four days a week before work. I would take the G train to Greenpoint, Agatha would walk, and that was in July of 2010, and three months later, I'd quit my job. I mean, it was so you So had, you bananas. had a
3: space in Greenpoint and before your no, other job? No, we had no space. Where we, were you doing in it? In my house. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. totally.
4: Totally. Don't tell the Department of Health, but yeah, we were baking out of our homes, and
3: luckily now it's a great, it's a (laughs) such a lovely origin story. But I mean, that's how everybody starts. You look at a lot of breweries and and people who make liquor and pickles, and everyone starts sort of in their kitchen if they can't find space, which is really tough in a major market. But we only did
4: that, honestly, we found our first kitchen almost like less than two months after we started because it was so busy. We just didn't know. You know, we thought that the market wanted fancy bar snacks, but really they wanted really good baked goods. And so that's really what took off. So
3: you obtained that first client. How do you transition that into your second and third client? Was it word of mouth? Did you do outreach? How does that how does that happen?
4: Honestly, the first three years we were 100% word of mouth. I mean, it was just... really it was agatha and i for the first couple years with a core group of staff who were still we're still friends with we had like three or four people and then um once we opened our retail location that had our our own dedicated kitchen behind it we had a kitchen in red hook for a while that's when we started doing a little more outreach because we had a space for people to come to we had the cafe um but yeah it was about three years we didn't make a single sale uh on our own we didn't we didn't go out and make sales. and we you, you didn't pitch didn't a pitch, sale at all. Did not pitch a sale until... You didn't do think, a
3: tasting for the first three years? People just... Well,
4: we do tastings, but people would come
3: to us. Got it. Okay. You know,
4: so we we just were trying to keep up.
3: And how... Kind on of a shoestring budget. How you know, early no one, on did you make your first hire? So it's you two. Yep. How long until you said, well, this is unmanageable. We need a part-time baker or something along yeah, those so lines. Yeah, so we
4: started baking in July of... 2010. And then, you know, we hired random friends to do things for us. Sure. Like uh, Agatha was married at the time. Her husband would come in and like, you know, package snacks for us. My friend Jasper would come in and like deliver things for us at four in the morning. But we didn't have a payroll until I am going to say April of 2011. We hired a friend of a friend to come and help manage the work. Um, and that was really when we started having an actual staff. And want, that also corresponded with us having an actual, kid, like a full-time kitchen.
3: The The thing about a partnership is that it, there can be a million permutations. It can be very tricky. It's intriguing that you didn't know each other before. I'm curious if you feel now that that was helpful, not having sort of 20 years of friendship baggage or, you know, knowing everything about each other, influencing that in terms of, uh, personalities, work responsibilities, various approaches um, how, what have been the major struggles in your partnership and how have you endured over an eight year time frame where you've where you've grown substantially?
4: Good questions. um you know, it was kind of like an arranged marriage, you know, we had no idea. we really it was so it was so quick. you know, we started talking in two thousand and nine, but we weren't really serious until we got that first client. I mean, we were doing a lot of random stuff, but it was on the weekend. So we didn't, it, you know, we would G chat at work and be like, what about this flavor? What about this recipe? Um, but I think that what bonded us was by the time we started, it was so, I mean, once we had that first client, it was so busy that, we, and we were put, you know, uh, we were just putting in so many hours that there was nothing else to think about. You know, we, we couldn't get into a war of egos. We had to bake, go to work, go home, bake, do work, you know, go to our real jobs for months. Um, and so I think we were just both so eager to start the companies and so ambitious and so tired and we just had to get the work done and there was no other space. I think, um, you know, we are definitely, I, 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 often say to people, it's like Agatha's been my most successful relationship without the romance because it's like, you know, I imagine that a really successful marriage, it's like you always love the person. You have your ups and downs. You, you know, you'll never leave them even when you're in your darkest moments. That's kind of like how I feel about my partnership with, with Agatha. And I think she feels the same way. But, you know, I think um, I think the the things that we're good at is you know, everyone gets in a mood. Everyone goes through phases, and we kind of like leave each other alone when it's we can tell that something's going on. Or like, you know, everyone has ups and downs in entrepreneurship. Um, I think that when we have issues with each other, we're good. We talk about it. You know, even if it leads to conflict, we will talk about it. And then usually, I I believe in conflict. I believe in confronting people, and I think that's a lesson I've learned from business. I think before I started Ovenly, I was probably much less prone to being like oh that hurt my feelings or this is not how I want to be treated. And now I'm like what is going on all the time probably too much. But um yeah, so I think we're really good at talking it out and I you know I think the bigger the biggest challenges that we've had have been really the moments where we're both working, you know, still after 8 years we both work 12 14 hours a day and I think that the hardest moments are like wow, we're still Slogging it. When, you know, this is the food industry. When does, does this end at some point? You know, it feels that's, those are our darkest moments, you know, you didn't
3: fly here on your helicopter. I didn't fly here on my yeah.
4: helicopter. You know, it's, it is just a work nonstop hard work. And I think that those moments are the harder moments when it's like, when we start looking at our age and where we're, you know, we're in our late thirties and we're like, how, how do we fit our lives into this business now too? So I think those are, those are the bigger challenges for us.
3: So someone is listening to this, uh, you know, they're on their way to work, they're in their car, they're on the L train, whatever. Yeah. They are on their way to their quote unquote normal job. Yes. And they are thinking to themselves, I'm pretty good at X, you know? Yeah. I'm pretty good at baking. My croissant is incredible, right? Can you summarize a little bit of advice that you would say to that person who is considering making that jump? And then I would love to hear about when the when the switch got flicked for both you and Agatha, when you said, I can't do both jobs anymore. This thing is real. Did you have to convince each other a little bit? Mm -hmm. Like who, who took the lead on that? And what would you say to someone who's kind of in the same spot that you were eight years ago?
4: So I think the, the biggest conflict
3: Agatha and I have ever had was actually
4: over the work thing. So I was gunning to get out of my job. I was just ready to Mm -hmm. leave um, I financially was more of a risk taker than Agatha. Um, and so I, one of us had to quit. There was, if we wanted Ovenly to succeed, there was just f- no physical way to continue working like we were and working full time. And so I, I was the one who was like, I'm out," it. You know, I will be first, but you have to follow at some point. And Agatha had a really, you know, we both had really great careers, but Agatha had been at her same job her entire She graduated, and she was in the same job, moved up um, at NYU School of Medicine over 10 years, had a really uh, high-level position.
3: She was kind of set. She was kind
4: of set. So she could have continued in this career, but she didn't want to get her PhD. She knew in her position, if she really wanted to go higher, she'd have to do that, and she had no desire. She was really close to her boss. Her boss was kind of like a second father to her. And so I had a friend, which is another story for another day, who uh, happens to be the or she retired now, but she was the number one female poker player in the world. And she was like, I'll give you guys some seed money. And so I think that the biggest conflict was, I was like, we have this money. We're either taking it and you're quitting your job or we're closing. And I think that was, that was a moment that was like really hard because it was like my friend, her money and me saying, now you quit. Um, and so Agatha ended up taking a leave of absence and I kept saying like, you're going to go on this leave and you're never going to look back, even though we're going to be poor, even though it's going to be hard. And she took the leave and she was like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm never going back. So that leads into my, what would I tell someone? Um, being your own boss, if you can make it work, is the best. I can't, you know, I cannot feel more lucky in that regard. Um, having the freedom, you know, to make decisions for the company to take a day off if you want to take a day off to to have the create you know provide the creative direction of something that you feel has momentum is really one of the most exciting feels feel, feelings in the world that said my advice is if you really want to do it you got to commit it commit to it you have to have one idea that you're focusing on and you have to be really prepared to make financial sacrifices, relationship sacrifices, and personal health sacrifices. If you're really interested in food, even if you're a person who raises a lot of money for a CPG product, you are going to be working 12 to 14 hours a day for the next eight to 10 years. That is the food industry.
3: Everyone hearing this, it's as fun as she's making it out (laughs) as she's making it out to be. I love that you think that I'm just going to skip over the way you got your seed money. (laughs) You're like, that's a story for another day. I have you in this room for another 30 minutes, so I'm obviously going to ask you about it. So the the next question that I was going to pose to you was, how did you get the business off the ground? Did you create a deck? Did you schedule pitch meetings? There is a traditional way to raise money clearly yours is a little bit less traditional if you can tell us yeah. how that possibly came to be and did you ever have to run the numbers for anyone did you ever have to show them a logo design like did you do a normal pitch ever for for anyone at the beginning
4: yes but not until two years ago so <laughs> um yeah at the beginning on you know another two. Another piece of advice get more advice from people when you're raising money. I mean, Ag and I really we've learned so much and looking back on how naive we were about money and equity purchase, and we just didn't know anything. But at the same time, we started a company that had momentum and so we had to we had to do something we had we, we didn't have a lot of time to decide on how we were going to raise money. So basically what happened was uh, my great friend Vanessa, she's still one of my very close friends. Um, knew what I was doing, knew I was pretty miserable at a desk job. Um, and another one of our friends, uh, a, a woman named Heather, who is Agatha's friends, who's also my friend now, had offered to provide us with a smaller amount of seed money. And I told, basically what happened is I told Vanessa, and Vanessa is a gambler, you know, and she was like, wait, what? I'll give you the money. You know, she was like, wait, no, that's my, I want to take that risk. So it was very lucky in that moment to have, um, a friend who was used to gambling a large amounts of money uh, and losing it to to be the seed investor and I what forever, a
3: dream investor <laughs> yes but it
4: almost ruined our friendship oh, so yeah. you know v-
3: very very stressful obviously to take so money stressful. from anyone
4: and you know what surprise surprise bakeries not very profitable you got it. it's all about scale so it was it took us a very long time to really get our sea legs for business and so that was that was really. Um, that was very difficult because I felt like racked with guilt that we weren't, you know, we ran numbers. We had, I mean, I just I just found our projections, which were hilarious and just totally off, um, you know, for Vanessa. And, you know, we thought they were right. Which way? Were they up or,
3: or way oh, down? Oh, just, uh, just so way off.
4: Our net profit, so our EBITDA was just like way bigger than we thought it would be. Um, you know, I think in a business like ours, there's so many... Little things that cost money that you don't. If you are coming like Ag and I were, completely different careers. We'd been waiters, but we'd you know in servers, but we'd never run a run a company. We just had no idea how capital intensive it would be. Um, But yeah, we ran numbers for her, and I just felt I really did. I felt like racked with guilt uh, that we weren't succeeding as much, and I think that you know I was not being you know I would send the finances late, and it just it caused a lot of tension between us, and ultimately. We um, bought her out of that investment. But it was, you know, we would have never had a company without, without that, that faith that she had in us.
3: We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to talk more about scale and about growing. Stick with us here on The Line on Heritage Radio Network.
1: To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com.
5: Hey, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival.
2: We are here live today at Charleston Wine and Food.
5: Join us as we talk all things food... Come to Charleston, eat some seafood, eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken with chorizo steak and salsa verde mashed potatoes. So quintessentially like Southern fare at its finest. And have important conversations.
2: We're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are. People of color in restaurants and how they're not talked about.
5: We get real with Food Network's Manit Chohan. Balance is BS. Uh, I, 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 was, yeah, I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out. And find out about raising sugarcane with Chef Sean Brock.
1: It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never know what you're going to find.
5: You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris.
4: Food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks.
5: So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't go wrong.
3: Welcome back to The Line here on Heritage Radio. My guest today is Erin Patinkin. She is the CEO and co-founder of Ovenly, one of New York's leading bakeries. They have multiple locations and they are about to expand with more than 10 more locations in the next couple years uh, that we're going to talk about. But before we get onto the expansion, got to talk a little bit more about baking. So baking is about precision. It's about uh, time management. But from my experience, you know, writing cookbooks and trying to write baking recipes down it's very difficult for a lot of different aspects especially oven usage like everyone's oven is a little bit different so I was I'm curious about two things one when you were testing recipes how hard was it to really nail them down and and drill it in so that the consistency was there because if somebody comes to a coffee shop on that Monday and buys one of your products on Tuesday they're expecting the exact same thing and then also from your cookbook writing experience Was everything already there and you just had to send it off? Or did you retest a lot of things for the home kitchen when you wrote the cookbook?
4: Oh, man. Consistency in running a bakery is one of the most difficult challenges that we have had. Um, And it's something we are insane about. Because, you know, for all those people out there listening and thinking like, uh, you know, what Eli said, I have a croissant. I'm really good at it. I want to turn it into a business. You better make sure that that croissant tastes exactly the same every single day. So, you know, if one day you feel like it's the best thing you've ever had and the next day it's like, good, put it in the middle and keep it there. Because if you have slight variations in flavor or texture, people notice, I mean, and that has happened to us, of course. So we work very, very difficultly are very, very arduously to get that uh, all down. So what we did was, we started, the way we became consistent in our is we started looking at things by the second. And we, you know, a lot of American bakeries bake in ounces. It's just not as accurate. So we bake in grams. And um, I mean, we made these changes years ago at this point, but we also, you know, talked to a lot of people. We knew some people who had bigger bakeries, asked them what they did. I mean, we got a lot of advice. But one of the uh, things that really helped us is we reformatted our recipes so that they were so insanely detailed, probably too detailed, but it would, you know, it says things like turn the mixer on speed two for 13 seconds, turn off, lower the bowl, scrape the bowl, raise the bowl, turn it back on for 13 seconds, lower the bowl. I mean, it's so detailed and that's what really helped us be consistent. Um, You know, there's still challenges in production baking like we do, you know, when there's changes in humidity in the room, you know, depending on the season, it can affect the product. But we we try very hard to make sure it tastes the same every single day. And, and you know, by tasting the same, also being really, really delicious. So that's something that we uh, worked uh, worked on for a long time. And the other piece of that for us was it was reducing our menu. You know, we used to have like 30- products on the menu. And one thing we realized is that people actually got overwhelmed by the number of products we'd have in our case or on our menu. And so we've kind of, uh, on our wholesale side, it's our best selling things. And then our retail side, it's it we just cut it down to uh, what we thought was the best product and what we could make the best. You know, you, you kind of have, have to make decisions around that. Um, for the cookbook, it was very challenging because a lot of our recipes we sell in our stores, it's the same thing. you know, we didn't skimp on a, an ingredient, so it's what you what we have uh, in the book is what you can buy in the store. But a lot of those recipes we had scale, we had started from scale. So you know, like I'm trying to think of one that we did, but like uh, you know if you're if you create a recipe that creates 800 units, you have to reduce that recipe to create 12 for the home baker. And that was so challenging because salt and baking soda and baking powder, all those things start acting differently in, in small quantities and big quantities. And so we would reduce it, test it ourselves, get it to a point where we thought it was working. And then we would send it out to friends. And I remember one of Agatha's friends, um, I can't remember what the, what recipe it was, but it said like whisk for th- three minutes or 30 seconds or something and she called out and she's like, what do you mean by whisk? And we were like, oh, we have to be so clear to the home baker. And we really wanted our book to appeal to people who love to bake or who wanted to get into baking. It's not, it's not a book for people who are super advanced. It's for a home baker who's starting out who or who loves to do it as a hobby. So that and then we'd send it to my mom, we'd send it to several friends. So people in different areas of the country, different ovens, different levels of experience. And that's
3: kind of how we he we developed all the recipes. Do you bake at a centralized location and then distribute to your retail stores? Exactly. So, and that helps with consistency too. So, while that that while that definitely helps with consistency, what you've sacrificed is the bakery smell at your retail locations. So, can you speak to the eyes, ears, nose type of scenario of a bakery? How have you been able to capture people visually at your bakeries when you aren't pumping? chocolate chip cookie smell through the rafters
4: like uh mrs fields do you remember <laughs> mrs fields cookies and malls they would they would pump they had a fan that would go out into the hallway of the mall so you go genius. And, it it's is genius it's one of the
3: best marketing <laughs> ideas ever, ever. ever because you're on the first floor and all of a sudden you're like i, I need, need a, a pretzel and a cookie yeah. why do i need that so bad right now Yeah, i have well. to have it <laughs>
4: um well one you can get anything heated in the bakeries, so if you want anything to uh, come warm, we can do that for you. But you know, we we had to make a decision. Uh, we looked, you know, this is where we've become business people. When we decided to expand, we said, "What is the thing that will work best?" If we have an uncentralized staff in many locations, every location is going to have a different product, and we didn't want to do that because consistency is key. So uh, we try to make – we have a lot of small spaces. We try to make them super cozy. Um, You know, when you go into an Ovenly, it's like the showcase is the baked good. You know, some bakeries you go in, they might not have a big counter space, and everything's kept on speed racks behind the counter. We wanted to make it so, like, it was like, you know, a jewelry case of delicious things. And that's what happens when you go in an Ovenly. There's, like, a huge case of – Things that you want to put in your mouth, so it's try. We try to be visually appealing. You know, a lot of people in New York uh, know who we are at this point, so we have a lot of fans, and they know what they're coming in for. So that's great. And we're, you know, if you come in early enough, you'll get things that are warm because we bake everything in the morning. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of morning people who come in. Um, But I think it's just as good at noon as it is at eight and people know our product is good. And, and it's really about getting people in the store. And also we're really crazy about coffee now. So we have a really great coffee program and, you know, just getting people to try it. We, we, we know that if we, you know, as a business owner, you start collecting data and we know that we have basically, if someone tries our product, we have an 80% chance that they will buy it and so we do a good lot of return we do a lot of sample because the stuff is good guys uh <laughs> we do a lot of sampling we give a lot we do a lot of giveaways um right now in our williamsburg location every thursday of the month i think from uh four to six or three to five i, I have to check it we have something called the sugar rush hour where you can come in and get some uh, a free treat um so it's really just awareness and getting people to try it and we know once people
3: try it they love it so
4: that that's what we have to do is just get people to put in their mouths.
3: Just have to set those fans up right right outside the store. Right. Uh, uh, going, jumping back a little bit to the business aspect of things. Your brother joined the company in a certain capacity. did. Did he not? He
4: did. My big bro.
3: What is his role at the company? And is this a recent development as you've, as you've grown substantially, or was he always involved from the beginning?
4: So Dan, my brother, actually joined the company for 16 months. He's not there anymore. He uh, was in L.A. Not, he was working for... He has an MFA, and he's this guy who can do a lot of different things, but he has an MFA in uh, film with a focus on producing, and he just was not enjoying his career in L.A., and so he wanted to do something different. He'd always wanted to try in New York, and this was at a moment where we started to do sales, we, we had a big growth spurt, and we needed someone to help us with our finances. So he came in and became our director of finance, redid our books, redid our cash flows, helped us model things better. And he worked for us for 16 months, and it was great. And he really had a strong sales background. He helped us develop sales strategies, sales pipelines. Uh, we set up Salesforce, you know, and so that was really his role was he are, uh, always, besides the film degree, did film or did uh, finance and sales, and so he really helped us in that capacity, and that was really fun. He just hated New York. He's an LA guy. He loves. He, it was like this weather is the worst. Why am
3: I here? And he said, "I'm out of here." The, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the cookies are really good, yeah. but the snow is really shitty. Yeah, so he did I'm, not like I'm heading back to the yeah. beach. An article came out within the last year, I'd say, about both of you and your massive expansion plans it's been written about a little bit but i would love to hear in your own words how it came about how it is being funded if you can speak to that and how you are making specific decisions geographically of where to go
4: yeah so there are a couple things um you know when you own a company you have to make a decision right are you going to stay where you are And build something small for yourself, totally fine decision, great decision, beautiful decision. Or do you want to build a brand that a lot of people know? And when Ag and I started the company, even though we knew nothing about business, we knew we wanted to build a brand. And so we had started as as a wholesale company. We had all these wholesale clients, but we were really missing the hospital. We loved hospitality. We loved feeding people. That's why we did this. We didn't do this because we were like we're going to be billionaires from selling chocolate chip cookies. We were like we love interacting with people. We love when people give us high fives when they eat our peanut butter cookies. That's what we love. And so that's why we opened our first cafe, uh, bake shop in in Greenpoint in 2012. And we just loved that part of the business. We loved interacting with the clients. You know, a lot of our wholesale clients may not, you you can't tell someone how to operate their business. So some of our wholesale clients advertise that they're selling our products. Some don't, Um, you know, it's kind of a faceless business. Um, And we really decided that we wanted to have, uh, have that brand like brand forward company. And so we knew we wanted to open more bake shops the second thing is, you know, Agatha and I come from a background. Uh, Agatha was a social worker. I worked in the arts and social justice um, initiatives before Ovenly. We started feeling we partnered with an organization called Getting Out and Staying Out in 2013, and we employ formerly incarcerated young people, political refugees, people with gaps in their resume, people who are career changers. And part of the expansion and the desire to grow was to prove. Uh, a thesis that we believe to be true, which is that business can be done in a more empathetic way. And so we also decided that there was no way we could do that with one unit, you know, with one four-wall place. And so um, those were kind of our two guiding lights and we decided to raise money. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that you asked, like, how did you do it? I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs are a little squirrely about talking about fundraising, but the fact of the matter is everyone needs money to run a business. And you know when you think you need money, you need money. And when you don't think you need money, you need money. And so you have to figure out if you're not independently wealthy or have someone who's going to provide you those funds right away, you got to go out and sell the company. And that's basically what we did. So in 2016, we just pounded the pavement, networked with anyone we could meet or find who was an you know, SEC verified investor, and we raised money for the expansion. And so that is how we did it. Uh, we also are very, uh, very cash efficient, like we're not people who, you know, I think a lot of food entrepreneurs fall in the trap of they build one place by themselves, their friends build it, they spend, you know, $80,000 on the first place, they raise a little money and they spend $2 million on the second. And we always felt that that was uh not the best use of capital, so we are also we like look for deals where we can spend a lot less money than maybe other or like companies do to build each unit, and so our cash go co- takes us a little you know farther than than maybe some other food concepts, so that's really the idea. So, but the growth really is we want a brand forward company. We want to be we want to provide joy to people all over the country with our baked goods. We want to be the neighborhood bakery in every neighborhood and we want to do it while proving that we can build a more empathetic a uh, empathetic economy for everyone.
3: You mentioned uh, SEC verified investor. Yeah. Uh I, I think a lot of people don't know what that sure. means and definitely why did you pursue that as opposed to just taking random money from anyone. How, well, can you speak to that a little yeah, bit? Yeah,
4: sure. What By the time we really, so when you, if you're starting a company and you're thinking about raising money, you can do what's called a friends and family round, round where you can take money from people who may not um, have particular assets, like a particular set of assets. Um, but once you do a real raise, the government says, okay, well this isn't your mom or your dad or your best friend giving you a couple grand here and there this is a real risk people are taking. And um, the Security and Exchange Commission says, well, if you're gonna allow people to take this risk, they have to have a certain level of wealth in order to do that. And so an SEC verified investor has a million dollars of assets to their name. And I think they have to be making, I'm forgetting the baseline, it's either 200 or $300,000 a year as a salary for two or three years. And so that's what a verified investor is. It basically is a person who can afford to lose money. Um, You know, and it's a protection because that's uh, you don't want people flooding the market and losing all of their capital to uh, startups that may fail because then it's bad for the overall economy because people are taking risks that are too onerous for them.
3: Five or 10 years from now, how many units and how many employees do you think Ovenly may have?
4: I haven't looked into my crystal ball to 10 years, but in five, (laughs) we will have 14 locations. And we are projected to have, I think, 165 employees at that point. And we have 54 right now.
3: Well, you have above 50 right now, which already puts you into that plus 50 category. Yeah, plus 50. That's a lot of people. And that is a lot of locations. I imagine that you have a lot of emotions about it. What are the main feelings that you have right now? And are you, is there someone else that's going to join the company to help specifically in a CFO role that was vacated by your brother? How will you and Agatha, how will your roles change, if at all, when that expansion continues to happen over the next five years?
4: Well, Agatha and I are very excited to do less things.
3: <laughs> so... <laughs> you don't want to work 14 hours a day anymore? I
4: don't want to be the CEO, CFO, CMO, uh, delivery driver... Head baker. Like, you know, purchaser of small wares anymore. Exactly. Um, so, yes. my So when my brother left, we actually had trained someone else named Lola to be our finance manager. And she's been with us for three years. And plug, she's going to get her MBA. We're hiring. Um... So fi- Ooh, good L- good job opportunity <laughs> yeah, exactly. popping up there. Okay. So Lola's been in that like finance management role for three years now or two years, I guess. Um, but yeah, part of this expansion is hiring people. We just brought on uh, a guy by the name of Ben Hudson to be our marketing director. He was at Brooklyn Brewery for years and I've known him since I was 20 years old. Um, and that has been amazing. We brought on a woman two years ago named Jody Rodriguez. She's our retail director. She had been at Urban Outfitters for years. She's amazing, and we're about to bring on Karen Damasco, who's a James Beard Award-winning pastry chef who was at uh, Grand Mercy Tavern and Craft and La Conda Verde for years. She wrote an amazing cookbook called The Craft of Bakery. She's coming in to be our executive chef and kitchen operations director. So, you know, Every time we grow a little bit, we're like, okay, who can we hire? I want to do less because you know once we're once you grow the company, you need to be focusing and um, you know we've had a hard time doing that because we occupy so many roles. So the change will be that our roles will become more and more distilled. I'm the CEO and I this the COO, and we can't wait to you know the fun part about growing this business is hiring people that are smarter and more experienced than we are. We learn we learn so much from people, and that's really exciting for us.
3: Aaron, thank you so much for joining us here on the line on Heritage Radio Network and sharing the growth of Ovenly and how you ended up where you are today. We'll be back next Tuesday with a brand new show at 11 a.m. So catch us here live on Heritage Radio Network.
5: Thank you.